Welcome back to another edition of Behind the Yellow Line, a baseball podcast. Jeremy Spector's here. Randall J. Sanders is here. I am Ronan O'Shea. You can find us on Twitter at BTYL Podcast number 56 for us. Lots to talk about here tonight. The ongoing lockout saga. Good news, though, right before we hit record here tonight on Thursday, February 17, Jeff Passan of ESPN.com says reason for optimism. So we'll talk about that. Some Cubs moves. Talk about the broadcast booth here. Extensions for JD and Boog. We're excited about that. We'll shed some light on that. Also, some Cubs trade rumors sort of percolating while this lockout is still ongoing, including a, a rumor deal here maybe with the Tampa Bay Rays, something and a player that's been talked about for a couple of years now with regards to the Cubs. We are going to have some fun looking at some of the worst single Chicago Cubs baseball games that we've ever attended. And, of course, we're going to look at number 56, celebrate some of those great Cubs. Ray King is going to be mentioned on the podcast here tonight as we get to number 56. But, Jeremy Randall, good to see you both. I saw snow in the forecast in Chicago. Is it as bad as they were saying it was going to be? No, not really. Uh, They shifted the track of the storm southward. If you are in the southern suburbs or in northwest Indiana, you got snowed on pretty good today. Uh, But if you are in the city and points north, you just had a rough evening commute. I I, I walked out a little bit around five o'clock. It was snowing pretty good when I went out and I'm in River North. So uh, it was snowing pretty good when I walked out there. It it was coming down when I was taking a little walk. I didn't I didn't want to be out there for too long. You know, I saw some pictures down by the Chicago River, and it looked like a pretty good blizzard or at least a good Chicago winter storm. I saw down near normal Illinois in the central part of the state, absolute chaos on the interstate. So you got to be worried. You know, I do a fair amount of mountain driving here in the winter. That always gets me a little bit anxious. Those flat roads, though, in the middle of Illinois or Iowa can be brutal in the winter. And I guess our neighbors down to the south are struggling tonight. And in fact, they do warn about blowing snow because, of course, it is so flat and there is nothing to impede the wind down there. And Ronan, if I may say, chaos on the interstate, probably the title of the normal portion of your eventual autobiography. That will be the title of that chapter, Chaos on the Interstate. I've had some good times on the interstate. Last Friday, took the day off of work, which is always nice, went up to the mountains, did some skiing, came back, and as I was leaving the mountains, it was one of these rarer events where Denver was getting pounded with snow. The mountains, it was sunny. So I was up in the sun, I was cruising in the mountains, you hit that 6% grade down into Golden and into Western Denver, terrifying, absolutely terrifying coming down the mountain into the middle of a snowstorm. But it got me thinking last Friday, I was out on the slopes, and I was thinking about you, Randall. Have you ever skied? Not successfully, no. Hmm. You've, have you ever gone skiing? Oh, I have attempted to ski, oh. absolutely, but people attempt to do things things all the time it does not mean you are successful doing so you roll down the mountain or the hill no no i i don't know that i ever really made it up the mountain you know i just kind of ended up flat on my back at the bottom and said you know maybe this isn't for me it's it's okay to try things and determine that they're not for you and so i did were you at a wisconsin site you know you know it we are talking so long ago that i could not tell you how long ago it was wisconsin would be a good guess but I certainly could not tell you definitively. Hmm. I never made, didn't even get all the way to the top, huh? That nope. surprises me. Nope. And that's okay. You got to know your limitations. Yeah. I'm not a skier. It's all right. Would you, uh, don't would go you ahead, give Ron. it a go again? I wouldn't be averse to giving it a go again, but I don't know that I will be going out of my way to do so anytime soon. Well, first you got to try the bunny hill, Randall. You got to get 
do the bunny hill and then you maybe you can successfully move up to uh you know black diamonds next i guess well jeremy i was thinking too as i was on that ski lift really trying not to look down i got a fear of heights and that's not good when you're on a ski lift and it was a really windy day with that storm sort of circulating around the area so uh kind of nerve-wracking up there i assume jeremy you have gone skiing before in your life I have gone skiing before. I haven't gone skiing in a while, probably 10 years at, at wow. least. So it has been a good long time. I'm, I, my dad always wants to go skiing and I'm always kind of like turning them down. Uh, you know, I, I, I've done it. It's fun. It was fun when I was little. I used to love it all the time, but uh, I'm kind of over it by now. But, you know, yeah. who knows? Maybe one day I, I will get back out on the slopes. Well, I'd like to see you both on the top of a mountain here on the Continental Divide. Uh, I got up there and you have that point where it's like, well, well, I have to get down and the only way down is that way. So you got to suck it up and do it. Whatever you think you're doing in Wisconsin, when you're skiing, you get to Colorado and it's like, hell no, completely different ball game, but a lot of fun when you can get moving and stay on your feet. I've, I've made it down the mountain without skiing, uh, in Aspen snow mass to be more exact, actually. Uh, okay. when I was probably 13, 14, I got up to the top of the mountain and then I got sick. I started, you know, maybe coming up wrong ways, in certain areas. Uh, the food. And so they came up. I, the ski, the ski guy came up, he strapped me down in one of those things. I got strapped down as tight as I could be in like the, the toe, the sled on the back. And the guy skied me all the way down the mountain. And I'm going to be honest, that was probably the most fun time I've ever had skiing. That was awesome. <laughs> you just got like, that's a way little, to do it. There was like a little, service. there was like a little like visibility thing and I could only see out. I couldn't move. I'm just on my back and you're just like going like all different races, and the guy's obviously a really good skier so we're speeding down the mountains fast i was like i was like this is actually really fun maybe i should fake being sick up on top of the mountain more often well fortunately i was not uh carried down the mountain or dragged down the mountain or anything last friday but i did see it there's a whole reason i wanted to bring this up on the show today it's not uncommon when you see people skiing to be wearing hockey sweaters. It's a pretty common thing, actually, people wear. So a lot of abs gear and stuff like that. I saw a Chicago Cubs jersey top going down the mountain, and that guy was going a hell of a lot faster than me. He was in control, knew what he was doing. But I saw him, and I was like, ah, that guy's good. I'm going to be just fine getting down this mountain. It was pretty hockey cool. Hockey sweater? Chicago Cubs hockey sweater? No, just a jersey top, a home oh. white Chicago Cubs jersey top. I thought maybe it was Randall. Yeah, yeah. I flew out to Colorado to ski for a little bit. Well, we, we've mentioned how the Cubs have gone downhill since certain certain points on the calendar. So that's just life imitating art. I, I will I say like that, Randall. I will say that I, I do enjoy being in the ski lodge. That is very fun. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, it is cool when you're up there. Uh, the other thing, as I'm sort of dangling off the side of the ski lift, what I really don't like on the ski lift is when it stops. Somebody messed up at the bottom getting on or somebody sort of stumbled getting off. And then you're sitting up there and you're just sort of swaying in the wind. And then when it gets going again, there's like a little kick, you know, a, a nice sort of steady kick that gets you going again. And when that happens, I'm just hanging on for dear Ronan, life. And I know you're, and of course, the rash. I know you're a big fan of swaying, but not, not in the wind and not on the, the ski lift. No, lawns at Alpine Valley as a concert attendee i do a lot of swaying but uh, freaked me out a little bit on the ski lift but it was good to see that cubs jersey awesome to be up in the mountains but as i was sort of getting back towards denver i was thinking all right guys middle of february baseball time let's do this we had an awesome super bowl over the weekend the nfl playoffs just fantastic this year but i got to be honest with you both and you've both been on the receiving end of this in terms of our group text 
I'm pretty pessimistic right now about Major League Baseball starting on time. And what has pissed me off over the last couple of weeks, and we've talked about it a little bit here on the show, I've been most annoyed by what I would perceive as a lack of a sense of urgency. Like, let's get this thing going. It almost feels like it's assumed we're going to miss some regular season games. I don't want to miss any regular season games. Want that season starting March 31st. About 20 minutes or so before we go live here tonight, Randall, you sent a text to us from Jeff Passan. Quote from him here, exact plans not finalized, but Major League Baseball and the Players Association intend to hold multiple bargaining sessions, perhaps daily, beginning as soon as Monday next week. This is exciting because that's what I want to see. I know you're not going to work it out in one day, but let's start meeting a little bit more frequently and let's get a finish line here in sight. Yeah, I 100% agree with you. To me, it's always been like this was the time period. You know, people generally don't act until they get deadlines. Like until you're coming up against something, it's always like, well, that's the future. You know, that's our future problem. So when a deadline occurs, that actually, that spurs action. So to me, I was always, you know, that final week, that first week of March, final week of February, if nothing's happening then, then I'll be worried. So I, I didn't quite understand how to read that tweet is he saying that multiple sessions could be possible every day like there'd be or multiple sessions just meaning like you know that means multiple times a week because like we haven't gotten a ton of bargaining sessions to begin with so but uh you know hopefully we actually start to see some urgency as you said from both sides yeah so my read of uh, passon's news here is that it's possible that they will bargain daily yeah. as opposed to multiple times every day. That's my read of it. And Jeremy, you made the point. Urgency is something we have, and Ronan, you made this point too. Urgency is something we have not seen in these negotiations. We've gone days, sometimes even weeks between the two sides exchanging counter proposals. If there is one thing that will get this lockout ended, it's the two sides negotiating in this kind of lightning round fashion over the course of a week coming up on this deadline that they've both kind of agreed is the deadline to get the season started on time. So I am still pessimistic, but if there is one thing capable of making me optimistic, it's the two sides agreeing to meet in this rapid fire fashion, because I do think that's the one environment in which an, in which an agreement could come about. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I, I also would like to point out that, you know, the there's no, re, like the lockout could end at any time. I mean, the major league baseball owners could do that anytime they'd play under the previous agreement. Uh, there, there would be no competitive balance tax, but you know, they, they would, we would have baseball. So it, the owners could do that anytime they want. So there's really no net necessity to have a February 28th deadline or whatever the owners gave uh, the players because they could do whatever they want at any time. And we could be playing baseball. So let's always keep that in mind that it's not just like we need to get a deal done. The owners have the power to the last let them play baseball. Um, the other thing I just want to say is, uh, you know, it's like, I, I, I this isn't that to me, it's never been like the type of thing where you could just lock the guys in a room and they'll figure it out because most of the work actually is, you know, back in their own breakout sessions. Like the union is, has, thousand players in it right so like they can't just take they can't everybody has to be ratified they, they have to go back and form the players and form the union understand this is the offer this is what we think come up with a plan come back to it so it's nice to see them getting like you know as you said rapid fire succession but it's not the type of thing in my opinion where like it's gonna still take some time even if it happens in a quicker fashion here's my question have we tried locking the two sides in a room and telling them they don't come out until there's a deal because it doesn't seem like we've tried that and I, feel I mean, like it won't work because like I just said, they, they, the union is made up of a thousand we, people. Have we tried it? 
But have we tried it? That's my question. Have we tried it? I mean, if we want to stall and add more time and not get baseball, then we yeah. can try it. <laughs> I don't know they're at that point yet, and I don't know who would enforce that unless we go back to my idea a couple of weeks ago that Joe West is the arbiter that decides what's going on with this collective bargaining agreement. I mean, the players rejected federal mediation, and rightfully so. I think we all agree that was the right move for them. Uh, the owners just need to show up, offer some proposals, let the players take it back to their attorneys and their legal counsel, let the players speak in. Jeremy... Going off your point as well a little bit too, the owners also don't necessarily have unanimous feelings about certain decisions that they're trying to push onto the players. You cannot imagine that Bob Nutting, the jackass in Pittsburgh who couldn't spend anything on that franchise, there's no way it's the same as like Los Angeles Dodgers ownership, which I wish the Cubs were more like. They spend a ton of money, they develop a ton of prospects, they make a lot of money win-win type of a situation there. I want to see more of that on the north side of Chicago. So in-house, players are not necessarily fighting with each other, but they're having differences with regards to what are bigger priorities or what are concessions that can be made. I would think some of the owners are also fighting with each other about things that they're willing to give up and other things that they won't settle for. My concern, if Joe West were arbiting the proceedings, is that they could have an agreement and Joe West would still call it two feet outside. I'd be a little worried about that personally. I think uh, he'd stick it to the owners. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, they fired him or accepted his resignation uh, in 1999. I've also, I've also accepted his resignation multiple times. <laughs> uh, to your point, Ronan, that's actually something that I've been curious about is whether or not ownership, if there have been any breaks in ownership, because we know Rob Manfred uh, works for the owners and obviously has to keep a united front. That was the one thing Bud Selig was really good at was keeping a united front for all the owners. Um, basically, you know, working in a way, where he pretty much had, uh, uh, you know, unanimity amongst the owners where they all agreed on everything. Uh, and I don't know if that's quite the same with Manfred. I, I think there's some hardliners out there that um, there were people that weren't even a, a approved of Manfred as commissioner who didn't want him to be commissioner. And that was a fight. So I, I feel like the Ricketts are probably kind of more in the middle of the road type owner. I don't think they're as far as your Bob Nunning, as you say, but they're not sure. going to be the guys that are going to be out there spending like a ton. But I do think they are interested in utilizing whatever um, advantages the Cubs have in making a team. They just don't, they're not interested in going like above and beyond that. They're not going to like spend like their own money. That just like, if we can make the Cubs a powerhouse, then we'll, but we're not going to do that. But uh, I, that's one thing I've just been interested in. Like, I, I imagine there are some owners that, like, like I said, in my opinion, the C, the reason there's a lockout is to lock out the owners. Because if we were to, to remove the lockout, there would be no competitive balance tax. There would be owners, in my opinion, I think that would be going out and spending a ton of money. Maybe the Dodgers you mentioned. Maybe the Yankees. I don't know. I mean, Hale Steinbrenner's not George Steinbrenner, but they still spend. Uh, there'd be certain teams that are like, okay, there's no tax we can go out and spend as much as we want and not worry about it and i think there's probably a lot of owners out there that don't want that to happen they don't want to set that precedent they don't want to have anything to occur so it's really more about controlling the owners keeping them in line in my opinion than actually locking out the players that's a really good point that's an interesting way of thinking about it too i know where dick montfort probably lands on that list yeah uh, given the way that he's acted over the course of these negotiating sessions pretty interesting exchange from bleacher nation that chicago cubs blog a social media handle and jeff passan earlier today as well uh, jeff passan confirmed a question from bleacher nation that said it takes 23 owners voting yes to agree to a deal so there can be seven dick montforts bob nuttings in the world who say we don't want to get on with this 
But if the other owners agree with it, this thing can move forward. That's an interesting caveat. 23 out of 30 are needed for the owners to move forward with the deal. It doesn't have to be a unanimous 30 out of 30. Right. And I, I just can't imagine. I don't think I think whatever deal will end up happening will, will be unanimous. But like, as I said, I think that uh, when Rob, Rob Manfred came up for a vote, it was only like 23 or 24 the first time he came up. And he did pass, and then they re-ran the vote again just to make it unanimous so they could say, oh, it is unanimous. But there were like seven or eight voters that voted against him. So there are going to be hardliners. And so uh, it's just going to be, I, I, you know, if the union can stay strong, you never know. Maybe there are some owners that will it'll crack a little bit. Unfortunately, it's not like it was, you know, 20, 30 years ago where owners I thought really cared about the sport. Now it seems like most of them either view it as like a trophy to hold or an investment opportunity and not really about baseball and winning. Yeah, when, when they come up to vote on this, they'll make it unanimous. They will browbeat their members behind closed doors a little bit so that they can present that so-called united front. But yeah, I, I did not know that you, that you only needed 23 out of 30 mm-hmm. in order to ratify a new CBA on the part of ownership. And like you said, that's good to know because I think the chances of actually getting 30 ownerships to agree on something is low. 23, that's more doable. You can have up to seven holdouts. Well, there's still a part on a number of key issues, including minimum salary, pre-arbitration pool, playoff expansion, and how many teams will expand at playoffs. So a lot of things to discuss there. Funny report out of WFAN in New York earlier today. You want to piss off Randall J. Sanders. Create a viral tweet with unsubstantiated news regarding the collective bargaining agreement. The report basically said that it's going to be a 14-team playoff. This is all a done deal. Randall gets real angry today on Twitter, and then the reports come in from other credentialed media going, nope, that's not by no means a done deal. Certainly that report is false. Randall, that one got to you today. I should note, it's not just credentialed media. It is literally the MLBPA communications director coming, oh, out, wow. and saying, okay. coming out and saying that this is not true. And I don't know why anybody would ever think that a WFAN host knows shit about shit. <laughs> And, and that's, you know, that, that's a much bigger problem is I think people not necessarily vetting the information that they, that they uh, disseminate, but yeah, that this, this whole format that whatever this guy's name is, generic WFAN host, that's his name tag, this whole format that he basically wrote out it awful. And I'm not even, I'm not going to waste too much more breath talking about why it's awful, because again, it's not true, but it, it, it plays like MLB wants to turn their postseason into a reality show. And that does absolutely nothing for me. So uh, I am glad that it is inaccurate. And there's a little bit of wiggle room here. Again, this is Chris Dahl, who you can find on Twitter at Chris underscore Dahl. He says that the format is inaccurate. There is no such agreement. There's wiggle room there. Like he could be saying there is no such agreement yet but it'll be ratified as part of the CBA. And I hope that's not the case. So if anybody really wants to read the details, you can uh, find me on Twitter at Randall J. Sanders. You can click your way through and find the proposal. It does nothing for me. And I hope it is factually <laughs> not the case. Well, I, I will say the proposal that he did, that what he did talk about was the proposal. I mean, that's what it was. Major League Baseball has been talking about for over a year. I mean, that's literally the proposal. So he just claimed it was agreed to. And I, I don't know if that's true because the, the players want only to go up to 12. So, but that is the MLB proposal. Yeah. Apparently the players are also uh, open now to advertising on jerseys. 
something yeah. that we have been talking about. None of us like that as uh, purists of the sport. We understand this is a sport that is motivated by revenue increases. I obviously, if I was put in this situation where you're going to say, Ronan, it's either one of two things, playoff expansion or ads on the jersey, for the integrity of the sport, I would not want playoff expansion. I don't even want it to go to 12 teams. I think that's too much for a league that has 30, but 14 is insane. And in the long run, I think 14 is going to, one, make more mediocre World Series champions and incentivize owners to spend less money on players because suddenly an 85-win team is very much in contention for consistently making the playoffs. That's not good for baseball. Those 85-win teams can win a World Series. They shouldn't have that much of an advantage over a 100-win team with playoff expansion. But ads on jerseys, man, that pisses me off. I don't like that at all. Yeah, and, and we've talked about this. The, the second wild card kind of inadvertently incentivized owners to spend or go for it slightly less because you can still be in contention as that team with a win total in the mid to high eighties and the ownership still gets to say they technically made the postseason, even if, you know, people don't necessarily agree with that. Yeah. A 14 team, even a 12 team postseason field is just going to worsen that. And I have no desire to see that at all. We do, we talk about comparing it to the NBA, to the NHL, where a lot of teams per league make it and you get a, a lot of near 500 or at 500 number eight seeds. I don't think any of us wants to see that and ads on jerseys. It, I'm treating it as one of those things that I will avoid like the plague, but is probably also inevitable just because the, the league is so revenue focused at this point. I, I treat it as one of those things that's probably coming. Eventually none of us are going to be happy about it at all. I, th I think that, you know, for the most part, the players are probably, you know, even, even what they're, they've given in on a lot of things and, and, and expanded playoffs and uniform ads are obviously uh, more gives they've given a lot of other issues. So to me, I, it seems like the players are probably going to lose out on this uh, negotiation as it is. And it's just how much they, they lose out on. And I think that the fact that like, that they're willing to give all of this and they're, what they're asking for is kind of so small in, 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 the overall landscape of major league baseball that like what they're asking for is pretty much going to be covered by expanded playoffs and uniform ads. I mean, that pretty much covers it. So it's kind of ridiculous that the owners haven't really just accepted the win that they have and lifted the lockout. In my opinion, as for the actual issue, you know, to me, the expand playoffs, I'm not a fan either. Um, it just comes down to the format for me. Like there are ways to make uh, formats that, you know, give it more of an advantage to your top teams, to your number one seeds. It, it just depends on how you do it. And they'll probably be kind of funky to, to, you know, enact. But so in my opinion, if they are able to make it in a way where the top seeds end up even better, or, you know, it, it ends up, it could, it could potentially have an even better than the current format or previous formats, but I just don't have faith in them actually doing that. And I'm, I'm going to say this when we do inevitably get ads on jerseys, hopefully a number of years down the line still, of course, it'll be Wintrust or it'll be Nuveen or some other corporation, Sloan. Locally. Sloan, some other corporation that already has Chicago ties or Cubs ties and make it something fun. Put a big old Portillo's logo on, on those Cubs jerseys, put a put an old style logo on those Cubs jerseys, make it something fun. It's not going to be fun regardless. Give us something to laugh at at the very least.
I disagree. I, I, if you're going to do something, just make it seamless with the Jersey. In my opinion, if it's got to be like a, a wind trust, just put a W on the, the shoulder or something, a small W in blue, you know, you can just pretend it's still a W flag. I mean, we already got the, the little Nike thing. So yeah. Like, yeah. That took some getting used to the Nike swoosh on the front. I don't much like it. I don't well, want a hot dog on there that I definitely don't want. No, no, God, absolutely <laughs> not. And I mean, COVID introduced a whole new, set of advertisements to the ballpark. I mean, the brick wall behind home plate at Wrigley Field now is completely covered. Look at clips from 2017. It wasn't even that bad pre-pandemic. We've got advertisements on the pitcher's mound now, and that's not going to go away. The owners introduced it. We put up with it because gates weren't open and revenue was down during that season, and they've left it there. I don't want ads on baseball jerseys, and I'm going to lose that battle. It's inevitable. It's coming. I've been watching a little bit of NBA basketball. There are few NBA jerseys that are more attractive than the Bulls red jersey top with the black font numbers and everything. It's a beautiful jersey. Now slapped across the top is an optical ad. It just looks terrible. It looks tacky. And there's a lot of money in baseball. A lot of places you can make money. Can we just leave the jerseys alone? Of course we can't. There's a place to make money there. They're going to go ahead and do it. So if you're going to shove that down our throats, give us 162 games pay the players a little bit more, take care of the minor leaguers, and then make your money, Dick Monfort and Tom Ricketts. It's just insane how much of this gets pushed on us. I 100% agree with you. I hate the ads. I mean, the Blackhawks have now, you know, NHL has ads on the helmet now. It's very annoying. Yeah. I used to always like to, to see the word marks of every each different team on the helmet, but that's gone in place of an ad. So, uh, you know, like I said, if you're going to do it, make it, try to make it small and make it flow with the uniform, but it's going to yeah. be ugly. It's going to happen, though. Yes, absolutely. It's coming. Um, here's another angle about the lockout that's gotten some attention in the last week or so. Randall, your guy, Crawley, was talking about it, particularly with regards to the Chicago Cubs. I hope I'm saying this name right. Bill Shaken, if I'm saying that right, from the Los Angeles Times, wrote a really interesting article about it. We, we retweeted it on the Behind the Yellow Line podcast Twitter account earlier this week. A lot of the spring training ballparks, and there's been sort of a resurrection of new ballparks built in the last 10 or 15 years or so, including the Cubs' new facilities, Sloan Park down there in Mesa, were built with public funding. Taxpayers down in the Phoenix area and in parts of Florida, tax money was spent to build these ballparks. Remember, the Cubs threatened to move to Florida. They were all ready to go to Florida. They got a bunch of money from the Phoenix area, from Mesa in particular. They get their brand new ballpark and facilities. Those communities are hurting with not a normal spring training. They didn't get a normal spring training in 2020. They didn't get a normal spring training last year. They're not getting a normal spring training this year. And even if we get a full month of games starting March 1st or something like that, revenues are still going to be down because a lot of people that travel to things like spring training aren't going to be able to pull it off in a week or two like they would if they had months to plan for it in typical years. This is just one other group of people, small business owners, hotel owners, Uber drivers, all of the people that comprise the economy down there that are getting screwed by this lockout that continues. And it, if this lockout continues, it would not surprise me if these, these Phoenix area towns and, you know, Florida's a lot more decentralized as far as where the spring training parks are located, but it would not surprise me if all of these Phoenix area towns who are missing out on spring training revenue for the third season in a row, like you mentioned, it would not surprise me to see them band together and actually take legal action against the MLB because MLB is directly or indirectly depriving these towns of the annual 
six weeks of spring training that they basically need in order to remain viable financially from a, a business standpoint. So for every for every spring training week we miss, it would surprise me less and less to see Mesa and uh, Sunrise, Mesa and Surprise and the other towns in the Cactus League, they band together and actually take legal action against MLB. That would not surprise me at all. Yeah, the issue to me would be uh, the uh, public funding of these uh, stadiums and an MLB basically screwing them over uh, by not hosting spring training. I mean, you will, you, you are going to get uh, minor leaguers out there. So there will be minor league camps. I don't know if that'll be open to the public, if they'll be playing games or anything, but so like these facilities probably will be in use a little bit, but you know, if, if you're a town and you, and you spend a lot of money to build a stadium, uh, you know, and your main tenant is not really playing like, hopefully, you know, I, I would want rent from that. I like these, these cities are spending a lot of money to build as these publicly built ballparks. So, uh, and to lose your main uh, anchor, your tenant is a huge deal for however long. And as you say, it's just a short amount of period. It's six weeks or so in, in, uh, February and March. So most of those stadiums don't really have much besides that going on the rest of the year, other than, you know, maybe some complex league baseball, or maybe they host some college or high school games or something. But, uh, so yeah, that's a big deal to me. And, and I, if I was one of these cities, I'd be pretty pissed. Yeah, and a lot of these parks we say paid for with public money, they're paid for by taxing hotel stays and they're paid for by taxing uh, the gates at the ballparks. Again, you're, you're not going to get any of that or you're going to get a very tiny portion of that. And it's a lot like uh, when the Bears trained in Bourbonnet for all those years. You know, if you looked at Bourbonnet's economy, that is a Bear-centric economy or was a Bear-centric economy. And I imagine there are businesses, restaurants, hotels down there in Bourbonnet that made most of their annual revenue on that that month, month and a half of training camp down there. They don't have that anymore. The Bears have moved up to their facility in Lake Forest. And these spring training towns, they are dealing with that same thing. You might have restaurants that make 50, 60, 75% of what they make in a year in the, the period of spring training. They're not getting that. So it's not just hurting the towns, it's hurting people in the towns. And again, it would not surprise me to see some kind of group legal action for every week that the lockout continues and these businesses are denied the money they need. Yeah. I mean, to me, that would be a lesser deal. I, I, I like, I don't, I don't see how a restaurant or a, a hotel or something in a city that would have any sort of recourse there because like, it's up to the team. It's up to the, they can practice wherever they want. Like that, that they're, they're just kind of like, I'm not going to say parasites because that's not what they are. They're big, but they're making money off of that. Like the city itself, that's actually in a deal with the team is using as an anchor has put up money to play that. I, I, I think is a big deal. And that would, that would, I would be, I'd be pretty pissed about it. I mean, when the bears played in, they just played all, all the Nazarene. So they didn't really, nobody put up anything for uh, those facilities. Look, I'm, I'm not a lawyer. I'm just an idea person. You know, I'm the BTYL. I'm just saying exactly behind the L lines does not constitute sound legal advice. I'm just the idea person. I would think too the impact of spring training is as opposed to bourbon a, a lot of fans that go to spring training are flying in. Like I, I would think that, yeah, there are certainly people that maybe fly to the Midwest to go and see bears training camp, but I bet those numbers pale in comparison to the people that are flying to Phoenix. Um, sports commissions like to overstate the economic impact of major sporting events. But Arizona State University did a report on spring training and the typical out of town sports fan that comes to the Phoenix area for spring training spends more than $400 per day that they're in Phoenix. That's hotels. That's riding around on lifts, bars, restaurants. 
shopping, going to these ball games, getting food and all the merchandise you get at a ball game. The folks that live in Arizona are going to find other things to do if there's no baseball. So that tax money is going to kind of stay local. They'll go to bowling alleys, bars, do other things with their money and go and spend that then they're there. But you're not getting those commuter fans flying in from the Midwest and elsewhere in the country, staying in $150 plus a night hotels or Airbnbs, eating out the entire time they're there, also enjoying some of the nightlife. So there's a real ripple effect there. And it sucks for baseball fans, especially baseball fans in the Midwest. You guys know firsthand, this time of the year into next month, weather really starts to grate on you as you're ready for winter to end, for sunshine. You can get out of the Midwest for three or four days, fly down to Phoenix before it's ungodly hot in the middle of the summer. That's a really nice, fun experience, and it's a rite of passage for all baseball fans. Three years in a row, that thing's been messed up, and that really stinks. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I agree with what you guys are saying. It, it, it sucks for anybody who's, you know, that that's they're a spring training town and that's what yeah. they make their, but to, I, I just, for me, I, I would say the people that have the most right to be mad are the towns themselves that put up the money for sure. the ballparks totally. and are not getting anything from it. And I think that's actually a big deal. And I, I, I wouldn't be surprised as, as like, I would hope that major league baseball reimburses them somehow. I don't know if that would happen or will happen, but I could see as Randall said, some legal action there to try to force them to get something. Interesting article, though. It's worth reading. It goes into some details about the legal issues, including some of the specific language that teams have. There's also a minimum number of games that teams have in their contract with those cities. So we got to get the spring training started. March 1 sounds really good. That gives you enough time to still get a mostly normal spring training and get to the big league cities by the end of the month and put the Cubs in Denver here in April. I really need that. Four days. I want to be at all four. I want those games to count. One other thing I was thinking about on the schedule side of it is uh, one thing that would stink from us not getting a full 162 games is it's going to further sort of unbalance the schedules because I would imagine they would just sort of pick up the schedule wherever it is. But then one team in the division may play an opponent six times more or less than another team in the opponent. So it'd be very weird, even if you leave or lose two weeks of the regular season, the schedule is going to be funky from then on out. And that's just one other impact that will sort of affect the integrity of the rest of the season. I have no idea how they're going to do that. Yeah. I mean, it would seem reasonable for that because most of those plans are probably already put in place, you know, flights, hotels, they're probably already reserved. So you and would, tickets you would are think sold. tickets are sold. Yeah, I know. As you, as we said the other day, I was thinking about buying tickets and I didn't go through it. So yeah, you would think that they would just pick up where they uh, left off. I, I, so I don't know. I mean, maybe there's a way that they could kind of try to figure out a new schedule, especially games farther in advance. But um, I, yeah, you're probably right. They probably would just pick up where they left off. And that, that would be, you know, an interesting season. I'm not exactly sure how they did it in 1995. I should look that up because uh, they did miss the first couple of weeks of the season and then they had to come back and, and play a, a lesser season. So, um, but yeah, it, it's going to be a tough, tough, Tough season. Hopefully we don't miss any games. I really, yeah. I'm going to stay optimistic and I hopefully we don't miss any games. I want 162. Let's uh, throw out a date here before we shift over and talk some Cubs stuff. What date does this get resolved? Randall? I'm going to go with March 1st. Hmm. Jeremy? I'm going to say March 3rd. Wow. All right. Give them okay. an extra two days. Ronan, what's your guess? Well, I want as much spring training as possible. So let's say February 28th 
and then get spring training started maybe as soon as March 2nd or 3rd or so and still get three or four weeks in. I really want, I've been very adamant about this the last couple of weeks. I want 162 games. I think it's critical for the sport to get it. Record numbers of the Super Bowl here, 112 million people watched it. It was just a couple million fewer than the most watched Super Bowl ever. Playoff ratings through the roost for the NFL. A lot of excitement around the NBA playoffs, particularly with the Bulls there in Chicago. There's a lot of competition. Let's get these games going in March. Let's have some good vibes around the sport. And something we'll all be able to celebrate. Once this is figured out, labor peace. Years of knowing that there's going to be games. We know how many teams are making the playoffs. We can settle in and just enjoy some baseball and what should be some pretty good baseball for the Cubs. Maybe not this year, but the next couple of years down the road, it seems like there's a lot of optimism. And we got some really good Cubs news this week. Not so much on the player front or the minor league front, but the broadcasting front. Marquee announcing, I believe, February 15th, so uh, Tuesday this week. Boog and JD getting multiple year contract extensions. Boog obviously coming back for his second year as the primary play-by-play voice for the Cubs on TV. Can you believe it's already been 10 years now with JD? I will say this, though. Of all of that news, and I love Boog, I'm just thrilled that JD's sticking around long-term. I have been very worried the last couple of years. Are they grooming Ryan Dempster for this role? JD is my favorite broadcaster in that booth right now. It's good to have him back for his 10th season. Yeah, JD, he uh, wasn't in the booth for a lot of games last season. And I know people have very little, very low confidence in Marquis. Are they forcing JD out? Is Dempster going to take over full time? Uh, yeah, so it's really good to see JD come back. And Boog as well, you know, he still has his national footprint as well. There's always some question of he's going to do one year in the Cubs booth and then go back to maybe doing ESPN full time. Uh, so it's really good to see both of them re-upping for multiple years. Boog and JD was a good booth. I think now they've had time to gel, to gel, and I think they're going to become a great booth, and it's good to see both of them re-up for multiple years. Yeah, I'm curious what the ex- their exact contracts are because I just can't imagine that Boog was only like on a one-year deal last year, so hopefully he was just like extended a uh, long time because he, he moved here. He moved to Chicago, so like that was got to be a big move. I, I, I'm, I'm a fan of the booth. I mean, we were all concerned. We were all worried when uh, – you know, Len left and we, we didn't know, I mean, especially Chris Myers, who knows who's coming in. Um, I, I, I would like to see, I, I know Boog is going to be gone on Sundays a lot doing Sunday radio, but I, I would like to see just more of Boog and JD, you know, we got a lot of other people in the booth and I know they want to filter out analysts and, and even some play-by-play people. We did get some Chris Myers. We got some Pat Hughes. We got some Beth Moens, but I want to see as much Boog as we possibly can. I want to see as much JD as we possibly can. So hopefully we continue to get Boog and JD as the main, you know, hundred plus games this season, hopefully 120, 30, 40 plus games um, this year. I I agree completely. Um, The thing with Boog, and I think, I think a lot of Cubs fans were unnecessarily harsh to him on his first year in Chicago. I think what it really boils down to is people are, afraid of change. People don't like change. A lot of folks don't remember. We did talk about this last year on the podcast. Len Casper's first year in Chicago was kind of rough. It was not smooth sailing from the very beginning. And it was really the middle of 2007 and maybe that Aramis home run that changed the tide and those 07 and 08 teams really solidified the fan base on Len Casper. He goes on to be one of the most beloved broadcasters in team history. So it took some time for that to happen. Boog's going to get to that point. 
JD has absolutely settled into the gig. He's the perfect man for the job. I remember talking to a White Sox fan about this a year or two ago or so, and he said, in order to be a local broadcaster for a team, you either have to have grown up in the area or have played for the team. And I don't agree with that. I think you can work yourself into the role. JD's about as perfect of an example of that as possible. He never pitched for the Cubs. He's not from the Chicago area. This guy is a Chicago Cub, though. He understands the fan base. He's embraced the city of Chicago. We have embraced him as a fan base. It absolutely can be done, and it's going to work out with Boog as well. I couldn't disagree with that more, uh, uh, how to become a local broadcaster. Pat Hughes grew up in the mm-hmm. Bay Area, never played baseball at all, and I can't imagine anyone else's voice on radio at this point. So I don't, I don't agree with that at all. A White Sox fan with a difficult take, you don't say. Well, you know, he's a fan of other Chicago sports teams, and you look at other teams in the city, and there are local broadcasters working for just about all of them. The Cubs kind of the exception. Jeremy, though, I know you're a big JD guy, and I think we've all welcomed his humor, his knowledge, and the fact that, to my point a minute ago, he's really embraced being a Cub fan in the city of Chicago, and that's something that's important. Cubs fans want a local broadcast. It's very important to us. We know what WGN still means to Chicago Cubs fans. JD's embraced that role, and I think the fan base has also really warmed up to him. I like JD, as you said. Yeah, I think he's done a good job. I, I, and I, I, we do want a local broadcast. Well, part of the problem with Marquis is they've been trying to make it too much of a, a national broadcast. You know, you brought in a couple guys from New York. They try to run things in a New York-centric kind of way, make it more national. But, you know, we, we do want – we want a local broadcast. And, and to me, I, I like Boog as well. You know, he's a New Yorker, but he feels kind of at home. Um, calling Cubs baseball games. And I think, I think as he, you know, experiences it more and, and, and learns more about, you know, calling games at Wrigley being more familiar with the team. Well, he'll be more of a Cub type broadcaster. I think he'll just grow into the position just as JD has. Um, so, you know, he still, you know, will tell you stories about his old days with the Houston Astros. Obviously the Astros are probably his number one team in his heart because he spent so much time with them. But I do think he's become like an honorary Chicago Cub. I mean, he's employed yeah. by the Cubs and I, I love, I, I think he's very good at his job. He, he's willing to learn new things. He's willing to understand uh, different concepts and he, he has humor and he also brings a, a perspective. He has an open mind and he brings a perspective of a player from the eighties into the nineties and tells good stories. So I think he's perfect for the job and I, I like both of them. Yeah. It's been a lot of fun listening to it. Another thing about JD is that he's been through the good and the bad with the Cubs and that's sort of a requirement with the franchise. It's easy to be around a team that's always winning. He was there in the dark days too, following, you know, Brenly's departure. There were some real bad Cubs teams that JD was broadcasting. So he got to be there for the rise in the fall. Boo got a little bit of a taste of that last year as well. It was a pretty interesting Cubs team to the middle of June or so. Then it was an awful Cubs team for pretty much the rest of the season. So it's kind of unfair too. Boo didn't get a normal season. When the team was good, the ballpark was a quarter to a half full. They got a couple of days with a full house there in that Cardinal series, and then the season fell apart. The rest of the year, star beloved World Series heroes were traded away. Good players were injured. The team just sort of limped to a finish line. Let's give him a competitive team, a team that can potentially win a division. A couple of years of settling into the culture around the franchise, it's going to be a total rock star. He's a great college basketball broadcaster as well. I wish he did Big Ten games. Often see him doing uh, more of like the Oklahoma and the Kansas, those kind of types of games. But he's a great broadcaster. He's a pro. It's going to work out just fine for him in Chicago. I I thought it was a great hire, and I continue to think it was a great hire. 
Now, if only they could make some tweaks on the uh, radio side. And I'm not talking about Pat Hughes, and I'm not talking about Ron Coomer. I'm really becoming endeared to Ron Coomer here. A little bit rough start, I think, in his Chicago broadcasting tenure. The play-by-play isn't really his forte, but he's very much Chicago. He was a part of one of my favorite Cubs teams of all time. I'm really growing to like Coomer in the booth. It's the other guy, the third guy that I'd like to see a change made in the, the Cubs cackler, radio. The cackler in the background. <laughs> the cackler. Uh, that's a good way of putting that, Randall. Uh, let's talk Cubs on the field for a minute. Uh, some reports here in the last week or so. Kevin Kiermeyer, the star defensive center fielder for the Tampa Bay Rays. A couple of years now, we've heard that name tied to the Cubs. Reports out of Chicago, reports out of Tampa Bay that this could be a possibility post-lockout. The Cubs would want some prospects in addition to taking on a nearly $15 million contract, but center field is one of those positions that while it may not be the biggest priority for the Cubs going into next year, getting a really good glove, a decent bat, that's pretty appealing to me. I think the Cubs need more options to feel better about center field next season. Yeah, this is an interesting possibility that we've seen come up a couple off seasons now wherein the Cubs would take back Kiermaier and his contract, get that off the books for the Rays, and the Rays are going to sweeten the pot by tossing in uh, a decent prospect. Kiermaier's contract is not unreasonable. He's due to make $12 million in 2022. There is a $13 million club option for 2023 with a $2.5 million buyout, and the price of that 2023 option may increase based on certain performance elevators. That's pretty reasonable. It, you know, I don't know the Rays system particularly well. I would need to see the grade of the prospect coming back. I'm not against this necessarily. I'll tell you the other name that keeps coming up that I'm not for, and that's Eric Hosmer, who is another name that keeps coming up in a similar scenario, wherein the Cubs would take back Hosmer, all of his money, and a decent prospect to, uh, yeah, basically to get the money off the book for the Padres. No, thank you. Not one bit. Hosmer due to make 20 million in 2022, 13 million each, 2023. 2024, 2025. Eric Hosmer has not been a good offensive player. I get that you could just plug him in at first base. Maybe the bat plays up at Wrigley versus Petco and he'll get you a decent glove. I'm, I'm not for that at all. If you're going to do one of these take back money to get a prospect deals, do it with Kiermaier. Stay far away from Eric Hosmer. Far, far away. Wow. Randall's not a big fan of Eric Hosmer. Uh, for no, me, sir. No, sir. I mean, to me, it would, it would all depend on the deals, obviously. I mean, uh, Kiermaier, I, I've always been kind of a fan of Kiermaier. I, I think he's a spectacular defensive center fielder. His bat hasn't always been there, although last year he kind of had a decent bat a little bit. Yep. He's also a Parkland guy, so uh, Champagne, go go to you. Um, but uh, Kevin Kiermaier, so like, you know, if they want to throw, the Cubs got money to spend, so none of these things really bother me. So if the Cubs want to pick up a guy like Kevin Kiermaier, a legitimate Major League Baseball player, put him on the field, get a prospect. We got money to spend. To be honest, Eric Hosmer doesn't bother me either. I know Randall's very angry about that, but uh, you know, the Cubs have money to spend. If the Padres want to get shed a salary and, and we're willing to throw in a decent prospect or two um, Cubs, you know, put them at first base. I mean, I, I love Frank Schwindel, but you know, he's not probably a mainstay at first base anyways. So I, I don't feel bad about moving Frank Schwindel off of first base and who knows? Maybe, I mean, maybe there is more in that bat with uh, Eric Cosmer because he's the type of guy who hits so many balls into the ground that maybe you, I mean, nobody's been able to unlock it yet, but maybe you could find a way to convince him to start hitting the ball in the air more. And that would unlock more power. I mean, he's had solid seasons in the past, uh, all-star level seasons. So who knows? Maybe he could be more of a complete player. But, uh, you know, I, I think these are the exact type of deals the Cubs should be exploring. I think they have money to spend. Take on some bad contracts. 
take on some prospects. I'm all for that. I just want them to be aggressive. Center field, maybe not the top priority. The team needs a shortstop, but yeah. center field is a spot that they could use some help. Ian Happ's going to be in the mix. Probably a guy you'd rather have in, in a position like maybe left field on a more of a day-to-day basis. Rafael Ortega, who certainly was exciting in his time with the Cubs last year, he's going to be in the mix, but you probably want a player like that to be more of a fourth or a fifth outfielder, ideally with your situation. So center field is a position. The Cubs have a ton of money to spend. They definitely need a shortstop. Center field would be on the list, I guess, of offensive players to look at, but more starting pitching is definitely got to be a priority for this team heading into next year. And then maybe they can compete. Maybe next year could be a year that one of those wild card slots would be a possibility or a weak central division. It could be a possibility, but certainly 2023 and on, you feel like this team could get good pretty quickly here. So well, that's what we're going to be looking forward to. Yeah. Here's my thing. I mean, look at the Cubs roster. I, I know we, I agree with you shortstop. We need a shortstop, but yeah. the Cubs need a lot of things. They got the Cubs have a lot of holes. Like who's on the roster, especially on the playing uh, field on the diamond a position player that like, you would really be like, okay, that guy is, He's the guy. Probably Wilson Contreras. That's yeah. it at catcher. Everybody else on the roster, like if you're going to acquire somebody, I'm okay moving them off of that position. I mean, I I would like to see Nick Madrigal at second base. I mean, we spent traded Craig Kimbrell to get him, so I kind of want to see Nick Madrigal. But like, we get a center fielder, I'm okay moving Ian Happ to another position. We get a first baseman, a third baseman. I'm sorry, but I'm okay yes. moving Frank Schwindel or Patrick Wisdom to the bench, no matter who it is. The only guy I'm like is would be Wilson to not move off of. So. Uh, I agree. Shortstop is a priority, but to be honest, the Cubs can improve in so many different positions that acquiring any type of talent to me would be an upgrade and I wouldn't be opposed to it. And to be clear, my concern about acquiring Hosmer in one of these prospect dump deals, it's not moving Schwindel off first. It's that Hosmer is sure him too. Uh, It's that Hosmer is really not a good ball player. So it has nothing to do with displacing Schwindel. It has everything to do with, has everything to do with bringing in a player who's just not good. That would, it would have to be a much higher grade of prospect for me to be okay with taking on Hosmer's contract versus taking on what's left of Kiermaier's contract. It's more money for Hosmer and it's more years for Hosmer. Well, I, yeah, I agree with you there. They would probably have to be a much higher prospect, but like there's a reason Eric Hosmer's on the trading block is he's not, obviously he's not a, a what San Diego wants and he, he hasn't performed. So like, I agree, he hasn't performed up to expectations. So there that that would be the reason they're moving him but at, right now for the cubs in my opinion I, I i would be exploring every opportunity to upgrade the talent in both the off the team on the field and the system so I, i'm not like turning on anything just because like if they're willing to give up a, a decent prospect that i feel is worth it i would totally take eric Cosmer and put him at first base and hopefully you never know like he he's had four or five win seasons in the past maybe you could unlock something and it, it's worth noting that it's worth noting that the Padres might have some urgency to try and dump off Eric Cosmer in a deal like that. Uh, he's able to opt out of his contract after the 2022 season. If he you know, doesn't improve, he's not going to opt out. And after 2022, he gains 10 and five rights, 10 years in the major leagues, five years with his current team. And that for the most part gives him full no trade protection. So if you are going to dump Eric Cosmer in one of these salary and prospect deals, there's some urgency on the part of the Padres to get it done this off season, because it's going to become that much more difficult to do after next, after the 2022 season. Well, here's something we can all agree on. 
Let's get this lockout over so there's moves, trades, transactions, free agency. There's a lot of players that do not have a home yet for next season. And once the CBA is worked out, like we had that frenzy towards the end of November and beginning of December, it's going to be chaotic. That first week and two in particular of post-lockout land where free agents are getting signed, trades are happening. It's going to be very exciting. And we'll get a little more clarity of, is this going to be a 75-win Cubs team, an 80-win Cubs team? Is there a chance they could get to 85 or 90? We'll have clearer answers on that once this lockout ends and players can start going again. That's going to be a very, very welcome time. And it's going to be awesome to see Nick Madrigal in a Cubs uniform. Big deal. Getting rid of Craig Kimbrell last year. Madrigal comes in. We saw what he did with the White Sox. He's got the home whites on now for the Chicago Cubs. Is he going to be the everyday second baseman? We need spring training to certainly lock that one down, but it's an exciting thing to look forward to. It's going to be a very hectic time too, because yeah, spring training is going to start and everybody, all these players are going to want to find rosters. I'm for it. Passing and Rosenthal are just going to be trading deals every, every 10 minutes. This, this team is signing this player. This, this team is signing that player. I'm for it. That flurry at the end of November and beginning of December was fun. Like that was fun looking up every two minutes and seeing a new player sign a huge deal. I want to see that again. And when they do end this lockout, we're going to get that again. Well, let's get through this lockout. That's for sure. we got a couple more Cubs-related things we want to talk about, including we're going to have a little bit of fun here looking at some of the worst Chicago Cubs games that we've attended in our time. We also want to talk number 56. But going to a little bit of a darker place here for just a minute, uh, pretty shocking news affecting Major League Baseball over the last week or so. It culminates earlier today. A federal jury in Fort Worth, uh, Fort Worth, Texas, rather, found former Los Angeles Angels communications director Eric Kay guilty on two felony counts, including distributing a deadly drug, fentanyl, and causing the death of Angels pitcher Tyler Skaggs. Skaggs was just 27 years old when he died in a hotel room outside Arlington, Texas, on July 1st, 2019. This is an absolutely horrific story, an absolutely horrific story. And uh, boy, there's been some weird side stories from Terry Collins making a jackass of himself in an interview the other day to how much drug use is happening among Major League Baseball players. How many players are abusing things like opioids to, start to try and stay on Major League rosters and play through pain? This is tough to read. Been a very, very difficult story. And I think you hope that at least Skaggs' family gets a little bit of uh, resolution, maybe from today's grand jury verdict. This is awful, though, Randall. Yeah, and really the most surprising player to testify in this trial to me was Matt Harvey. He testifies under federal subpoena. He admits on the stand he would not be testifying if it were not for that federal subpoena. And he admits to using cocaine in his time with the New York Mets just to try and cope with the pressure. And honestly, I'm a guy who's been on Matt Harvey for a lot of things over the years. And I, I recant a lot of that now because the guy clearly dealing with a lot of very difficult things and he turns to substance abuse. And like you said, Terry Collins does not come out particularly well in this aftermath. Some of the interviews he's given, some of the stories written, he knew about all this. He knew about Matt Harvey being on cocaine and other substances and he gives it a cursory, are you on something? No, okay. And then he lets it slide. So I would hope there would be some kind of investigation into that at some point. But like you said, this is a terrible thing. Other major league players testifying. Uh, it, it's a terrible thing. I hope it sheds some light. And I know we'll get to that in just a second. Well, I think too, the bigger problem with Collins is he shared a lot of intimate details about Matt Harvey without Matt Harvey's permission. Uh, he shared a story about, you know, 
to not beat around the bush too much here, severe mental health crisis that was occurring with Matt Harvey. And he just sort of told the story. It wasn't his place to tell that story. That's where I think he was really out of line. You do not say things about private conversations you have with athletes, particularly if it pertains to something as serious or delicate as mental health. And you just ream it out looking for media attention. That's what really irritated me about Terry Collins in the last day. No, I, I agree with you. And, and, and I, I would go a step further, not just, not just athletes, anybody, to be honest, like, uh, you for know, sure. if, uh, if somebody is telling, talking to you and saying things in a, in a time of need and despair that you should not just like looking back. Oh yeah. He said all these things to me like years ago, like, dude, uh, show some, you know, have, you know, some confidentiality there. I, I realize it's not a, a priest, you know, or doctor relationship, but still you're the manager. And, you know, Terry Collins, he said, you know, he didn't know that he, all you he, you heard things and, and all you can do is just ask in roundabout ways. So yeah, the, it's, it's an interesting thing. Cause it's kind of like the Pittsburgh drug trials in the eighties, you know, when cocaine use was an extremely prevalent thing and major league baseball had to get around that, uh, uh, you know, cause you had, you had like Tim Raines saying he slid into like second base and having his Coke vial, like breaking the bat in his back pocket. Uh, so and the opioid issue obviously is a, a bigger issue just in the country as a whole. Uh, but then you have players like Lance McCullers, you know, saying today that he, he's never seen anything like this in a major league clubhouse. He has no idea what's going on. And opioid use is part of major league testing has been for the last couple of years. And they've had, I, I don't know if they're just not doing their job. They've had no violations uh, in over the last two years, I believe of um, so I, I don't know what's going on here. It, it's kind of ridiculous that, they, uh, the players are able Tyler Skaggs, his, even his wife said she had no idea what was going on with Tyler Skaggs mm-hmm. and she didn't know that these things were happening. And he was buying from a uh, clubhouse attendant, I believe, uh, Eric Kay, or excuse me, communications, communications. Director. Yes. Yeah, communications director. Sorry, I confused that with the uh, scuffing of the ball, uh, also with the Angels. But uh, yeah, so, you know, you, as you said, CJ Cron said he bought from this guy. Uh, other players came out and testified that they, they purchased it. So there obviously is something. And so I think major league baseball is really going to have to, you know, do a deep dive here and figure out what's going on because let's face it. Like, first of all, it's a high pressure job. Obviously you're, you're, you, you're trying to make the majors. A lot of these lower guys um, you're hurt a lot. Like a lot of these players probably had injuries, um, you know, a pitchers you're, you're, you're having the surgery they're probably prescribed a lot of painkillers and you know, all that, that leads to the path of getting, you know, Brett Favre had the same issue back in the nineties. You know, you, you start getting addicted to opioids, mm-hmm. uh, Tom Petty, another one, uh, RIP. Uh, but uh, so like, this could be a serious thing. And, and this is, would be a black eye, I guess on baseball. And I, I think baseball really needs to get to the bottom of this and figure out like, why did they have no, uh, violations over the last two years. Is this just like a locally contained thing that was happening in Anaheim with certain players there? It doesn't quite sound like that. Or is this a, a bigger, more widespread thing like it is kind of in our country? And Jeremy, you brought this up in our pre-show discussions. The, the big question here is what do we know? What don't we know? And like you said, I think this is going, this needs to be MLB's reckoning to dig into this issue as deep as they possibly can and find out how prevalent this is across major league clubhouses. Because I guarantee you that Eric Kay was not the only major league employee who has a source for painkillers like this and a pipeline to get it to players who know when to ask. I guarantee you he was not the only one. And the onus now falls to MLB. I mean, you lost an MLB player to this 
not three years ago. The onus now falls on MLB, if it didn't already, to dig into this and ensure that this does not happen again. And I, I will say, I don't agree with MLB on a lot, but one thing they do have in their drug policy is that for a first offense on a drug of abuse like this, there is no penalty. You are entered into a treatment plan, but you are not suspended. And I think that is an excellent step because you do not want players to feel like they are going to be penalized for coming forward and saying that they're on these drugs, that they're addicted to them. You want to get them the help that they need. So I don't agree with them. I'll be on a lot, but that is an excellent first step is making sure that there is no suspension penalty for a first time offense of a drug of abuse like this. Yeah, I agree with you there, Randall. I, I think for these types of uh, drugs, uh, treatment is way more important than punishment, rehabilitation, uh, you know, then. Uh, so I, I agree with you. I, I think the, the, main thing should be showing concern for the player. Well, there's a lot of sports leagues here in the United States that have had an ass backwards approach to pain management with athletes. National football league has ruined careers, messed up the income of pro athletes for smoking marijuana, for eating edibles, for having cannabis in their system. Yet they're pumping these guys with industrial strength, opioids and painkillers and putting them back on the field after they're clearly injured or in pain to try and finish a game. So been a lot of bad things over the years and the way that athletes have been treated. Uh, Jeremy, you brought up a great point. It is so desperate. I think the feeling that a lot of these major league players have all the years of playing college ball, toiling in the minors for pennies, you get a little taste of the majors. You just want to stay on an active roster. It's lucrative to stay on an active roster. The longer you're on an active roster, the more money you're going to get in consecutive seasons, the more leverage you get in terms of getting future deals or opportunities with teams. So players are willing to take things to not feel the pain, go out and play for another day, get that extra double or home run and try and play for that next contract, which is going to be a bigger deal for them than what they're currently making. So this is a, just a horrific story. It's a sad story. I was also surprised that the communications director was the member of the front office that was distributing the drugs. You've heard stories in the past where the clubbies, that's where players would go to get what they need. Opposing players knew that when you went to the opposing clubhouses, you take care of the clubby, they're going to get you anything and everything that you need. And it was just sort of understood that that was the case. This was the communications director with the franchise. He had some substance abuse issues of his own, and now he's looking at potentially 20 years in federal prison and a promising young talented pitcher is dead it's just a, a heartbreaking story all the way around and let's hope major league baseball can clean this up this should never happen again and hopefully it will never happen again hopefully and and even you know not just guys that are trying to you know stay in the majors but like look at a guy like matt harvey who was basically a star pitcher for a time and for the new york yeah. mets i mean and, and he, his drug of abuse was in choice was cocaine not uh, oxycontin or oxy but uh you know, just being in the, the that kind of limelight uh, in New York and, and probably, you know, having all the opportunity that he had as a star player in New York and going out and doing things, then having to deal with that, it probably leads you down to a certain path that you probably don't necessarily should be going or want to be going. So, you know, it's it's tough for a lot of guys. So so here the one thing to me is like these are all people. Right. Yeah. These are they're, they're major league baseball players, but they're all also people and people, you know, people have flaws. People, nobody's all bad. Nobody's all good for the most part. Um, so, like, I think we should recognize more, like, 
that major league baseball players and athletes and all these players in general are people and the issues that they have. And like, sometimes we put these guys up on a pedestal, like, Oh, they're on our team. We love them. We make all the things. And you know, we don't really know them or, or the opposite. We vilify guys and they're on the opposing team or we hate them or whatever. And all these things, but they're, they're just people and they have their own issues and their own things. And I think sometimes we should take a step back and recognize that and yeah. have an understanding of that. And that way we could deal with it instead of just being like, Oh, you know, looking at them, not as humans. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. Well said there, Jeremy, um, but uh, difficult news certainly. And um, lots of extensive coverage uh, ESPN actually doing very thorough, solid reporting. That is a thing that still exists out there. There are sports journalists that are honest and doing hard work and helping capture this story and hopefully leading to better changes moving forward. Um, we got two more topics we want to talk about here as we bring this thing home today. Want to have a little bit of fun, make this lighthearted for the final couple minutes. There was a Cubs Twitter account that we saw, and Randall pull it up. I'm, I'm blanking on it right now, but they've been doing a countdown here of some of the worst games that they've individually visited. Randall, did you get that account? I saw your hand. That, of up. course, is uh, Cubs Insider, whom you yes, can find on Twitter at Real Cubs Insider. Uh, of course, run by Evan Altman, fine Twitter yeah. individual. Definitely follow him. Definitely follow them if you get the opportunity. Well, it was a great idea, and I loved it. I was reading through it. He was talking about a Cubs-Cardinals game in his most recent post, but it got me thinking. We've all been to a lot of games. We've all seen some 90-loss Cubs teams in our time. Jeremy, what would you say are some of, or let's start with one. Maybe we'll do one each and then come around for a second round. What is one of the worst Chicago Cubs baseball games you had the pleasure of attending? So I, 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 I didn't go with the actual necessarily the game on the field. I meant more the the heartbreak of oh. being in the attendance. So I, I had a couple, but I'll, I'll I'll stick with one. So I'll go with the most recent one, and that would be I, I would say game eight, uh, game one sixty three in twenty eighteen of just Ooh. watching Orlando Arcia just dash over all our our hearts. And you know when I Rizzo hit that ball, I thought, okay, we're good here. And just so that's what I'm going to go with. Just 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 seeing that, just seeing your team lose in that situation. I know the Cubs still made the playoffs and they had the game against the Rockies the next day, but that just felt like a huge moment. And just being at that game and watching it. And there's lots of games that you know I was at where like it was hard, but that was a total heartbreaker for me. And and I actually have another one, but I will come back to that one later. Randall, give us one of the worst Cubs games you've ever attended. You know, I, I went through my history here and I tried to find a game that just absolutely stabbed me in the chest, twisted the knife and tore out all the entrails. I was fortunate to not find any like that, but I did come across a game August 27, 2012 at Wrigley Field. I was sitting in the bleachers and I was fortunate enough to see the Cubs lose to the Brewers 15 to four. And not oh, only was God. I fortunate enough to see the Cubs lose to the Brewers 15 to four, I was fortunate enough to see utility infielder Joe Mather go out there and pitch because the game just got that completely out of hand. Again, this is a game the Cubs lost 15 to four. Joe Mather had to go out there and try and get a couple of outs in just an awful top of the ninth inning in which the Brewers scored, uh, in which the Brewers scored nine runs. And Joe Mather had to go out there and stop the bleeding. And of course, this was 2012. The 2012 yeah. Cubs were not a particularly good team. They managed to win all of 61 games. And there's just nothing quite so emblematic of that year. And I know that was the beginning of Theo's tenure. There were brighter times on the horizon, but nothing quite so emblematic as uh, being at a game like that, watching them lose 15 to four and watching your awful Aaron Miles clone, your utility infielder that year, have to go out there and pitch. 
Was that a day game or a night game? It was a night game, according to the box okay. score. It was a 7.08 p.m. local time. It was held on grass at Wrigley Field. And <laughs> just, yes, just in case anybody was curious. And uh, the start time weather was a pleasant 78 degrees with a six mile per hour wind in from center field and sunny. So clearly it was a nice evening. You said you were in the bleachers. Did I, I was. Right? I was yeah. in the bleachers. And I remember turning around. Of course, there were no video boards. The only electronics you had out there was that light ribbon underneath the scoreboard. And I, gosh, does that say Joe Mather P for pitcher? Am mm. I seeing this right? Yeah, it, it was not a ton of fun. You know, the reason I ask about that is uh, those day games in the bleachers. And Jeremy, you've had season tickets out there the last couple of years. Those day games in the sun can be absolutely brutal. I mean, just you'll melt out there on the wrong day. Imagine like a, a 15 to low scoring loss like that. You're sitting out there baking in the sun. That just sounds miserable. But at least you got a night game. So you weren't totally frying out there. No, I don't. I don't do day games in the bleachers. I have yeah. done it a couple of oh. times and I am good for the rest of my life. All of my bleacher experiences uh, since then have been and will continue to be in the nighttime where I do not grill on both sides as I'm trying to watch a baseball game. Well, I got one here that I wanted to throw into the mix, and I've seen a lot of bad losses over the years. I think I can justify this one, even though technically the Cubs were in it the entire game. They could have won it in the ninth, but it was a Cubs loss. This was a game that I attended in Milwaukee with my mom, my dad, and Randall J. Sanders. We brought Randall out to the ball game. I'm talking July 5th, 2004. The Cubs lose one to nothing to the Milwaukee Brewers at Miller Park. The lone run scoring on a solo home run from Craig Council in the first inning. That game stuck, though, because you want to go to the ballpark, shutouts really stink because you never get that moment to really cheer. Nothing really happens offensively. Yeah, you might turn a double play, get a good strikeout, you get to cheer about that, but you never get to see the home run or the team cross home plate, so it's kind of uneventful. Ben Sheets, seven shutout innings, 12 strikeouts. Cubs had no hope against Ben Sheets that day. And of all the guys to hit the game-winning homer, Craig Council in the first. You remember that one, Randall? Uh, yes. Correct me if I'm wrong. Matt Clement on the yes. pill for the Cubs that day. Yes. You know, that's the start of my lifelong hatred affair with Miller Park and the Brewers. That was really my first exposure to Miller Park and kind of the Brewers. And to this day, my, my first impression remains. It felt like the ballpark and the team were minor league play acting at the big time. And uh, yeah, I, that, that was the first time I realized, gosh, I really don't like the Brewers and it has not improved any since. I remember that game vividly. We were in the upper deck right behind home plate. Uh, I remember the view of the ballpark very vividly. It was a tough one. Uh, Cubs lineup that day too. 2004, pretty good team. They had lots of great players that day though. Starting third baseman, Ramon Martinez. Left field, Jose Macias. Shortstop, Ray Ordonez. You wonder why the Cubs didn't score anything against Ben Sheets. A lot of bad bats in the lineup that day. Yeah, that's not good up up the middle and uh, to oh. left field. That that's I'm glad I missed that one. That, that I mean, you had eight innings of absolutely nothing. Rare and day. That was, from that was also my first exposure to Miller Park's parking lots, wherein mm -hmm. there is one egress point for all of those cars, and you are going nowhere fast. And I don't know that I've, and in fact, not that I don't know, I've never seen a win at Miller Park, nor have I ever gotten part of the, out of the parking lot quickly. So that was the, the first on a number of levels. Part of the lineup for the Cubs that day, the four and five hitters, Derek Lee, 0 for 4, three strikeouts, very rare off performance for Derek Lee. Next guy, a little bit more believable, Corey Patterson, 0 for 4, 
three strikeouts. So meat of the lineup there where you need some power and slugging, not the case that day against Ben Sheets. And we got to see Kent Merker Randall pitch for the Cubs that day following Matt Clement, who went seven innings, six walks. Clement struck out 10, one run, that home run to Craig Council, Cubs lose one to nothing. One of the more deflating Cubs games. You go all the way up to Milwaukee, you don't even get to see a run scored. That could be a bummer. You got some well. You got some base traffic. Uh, yes. Yeah, I, I yeah, and I had a second one. I'll, I'll go into sure. now. Uh, game seven, two thousand three NLCS. Oh, uh, another heartbreaker. I went with the heartbreak. Kerry uh, Wood hitting that home run. I still say it to this day. I I, I don't know if I've ever heard Wrigley Field louder in my life. Uh, unfortunately, I didn't get to go any World Series games, but. Uh, that was insane and like the greatest moment I think ever. I I, I loved it. Boys, I Lou hitting the homer, and then everything just fell apart. And Kerry couldn't handle it. Yeah, he clearly was laboring on the mound. I, I thought he probably should have come out a little bit earlier. Um, it was fifth inning, and you know you got that Troy O'Leary, uh, like ninth inning homer to make it nine six. But that that was another heartbreaker. That's a tough one. Um, as great as that moment was when Kerry hit that home run out of the ballpark, all downhill from there. And I would imagine, too, just after game six, we all know what happened with that game. There was kind of a nervous energy at Wrigley Field that day. And it sort of exploded with the Kerry Wood home run. But it's not like people were feeling good going to the ballpark that day. There was sort of impending doom. And that's, of course, what happened. The Marlins win handedly. Yeah, I mean, there was a party atmosphere, I would say, from like – the second to fourth inning or whenever Kerry would hit the homer and then Moises Alou fouled it with a homer and they were comes from five to three. And then once Kerry would start walking guys and guys start getting on traffic, it was like, okay, yeah. you know, the whole, everybody knows what's kind of coming and it finally happened. And then there was like, okay, this is over. And it's only the sixth, seventh inning. Yeah. The, the life of a Cubs fan is wondering when the other shoe is going to drop. After game six, I don't know that anybody felt great about going into game seven. There was, as you said, that pall, that dark cloud hanging over the ballpark. And unfortunately, it ended up manifesting. Mm -hmm. I had faith in Kerry. I I was excited for it. Who knows? You get into the World Series there. Maybe 2003 could have been magical, you know, but it uh, was a fun year. Really, really tough ending. You got another one for us, Randall. Bad Cubs loss. You know, I, I, I'm fortunate not to. I've certainly seen plenty of losses in my time. I've sat out there in night games that were chilly. Uh, in fact, okay, a game against the White Sox in 20, probably 2013 comes to mind. I was at a night game against the White Sox at Wrigley. I had really nice seats. It was cold as hell. The Cubs had the audacity to go and lose in extras. So I didn't just get to sit out there all night and freeze my ass off. I got to sit out there for an extra couple innings and freeze my ass off. So a little extra time in the freezer that night. But you know, I looked through my list. I do have on my phone uh, the MLB ballpark app that helps me keep track of games I've been to. And I couldn't really find another really gut-wrenching loss. Again, I've seen a lot of bad losses in my time. I, there weren't too many, and I'm fortunate that really came to mind as particularly gut-wrenching. So knock on wood, I hope I don't add to that list anytime soon. Well, I seem to remember a pretty agitated Randall J. Sanders in Denver, Colorado in June of 2019, sure. looking at the Cubs losing two out of three. Sure, but that's not Rockies. gut-wrenching. Those are just losses. And then those aren't just losses, they're Coors Field losses. You can be up 10 to nothing at Coors Field and you still be at risk of giving up that lead. So again, I've seen plenty of losses in my time and I don't think there's ever any such thing as a good loss, maybe an exciting loss, but that's not really gut-wrenching. That's just a Coors Field game. Your pitcher, Darvish at the time, and whoever started that next night just loses command. You give up back-to-back home runs. The game gets out of hand. That's different. That's not gut-wrenching. That's just Coors. 
Uh, I can think of some agitated Randalls. I mean, there was one Milwaukee, Chris Bryant's homer. Look, the, the, topic here, the topic here is not agitated. <laughs> we'd, be here, we'd be here all night. We'd be here all night if that were the topic. Well, speaking of the, the White Sox. Worst losses we've ever experienced. Two very different topics. I, I'll throw one out there, and it's only just because of what happened. I, I don't actually mind necessarily losing to the White Sox, although it sucked. But being at the game when Aloy hit a two-run homer off of uh, Pedro's trope in the ninth oh, inning man. to win the game, Oof. sitting in the bleachers, uh, was not quite that fun. And actually – Actually, what made it humorous to me in the moment was the White Sox fan next to me was in the process of arguing with security and getting ejected. I'm like, dude, you're being a jackass. You just missed probably the best moment of your life seeing Aloy hit a game-winning homer against the Cubs at Wrigley. So, like, you could have been owning all these people instead of getting ejected. So I actually kind of was laughing about that. Wait, wait, wait. Are you telling me, and are you telling me a White Sox fan was more worried about arguing with something Cubs than in cheering on their own team? Are you sure? Because well, no, I'm telling you, a White Sox fan was in the process of getting ejected. Just let, me <laughs> have the, just let me have this, Jeremy. Just let me have this. <laughs> he wasn't arguing. What he was arguing was about that fact that well, he some... was arguing with a Cubs employee. That counts. Yeah. 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 You know, last week we talked about the Carlos Lee Grand Slam to beat the Chicago Cubs 2001. Courtney Duncan was the pitcher that gave up that Grand Slam. That was a pretty bad loss yeah. of a ball game that I've been to just to be on the south side. Cubs struck early in that game. Looked like it was going to be an easy win. Sox get back into it. Courtney Duncan gives it up. And El Caballo hits the walk-off slam. So that one stung. But I wanted to go, because we talked about that so recently, with one other game from my wheelhouse. July 19, 1999. So go back to July of 99. Cubs had already started their swoon that year. Made the playoffs in 98. Had a really good start into June in 99. Started to get ugly. But I was at a 10-2 Cubs loss at Wrigley Field against the 37-54 Kansas City Royals. Bad Royals team. They struck four runs in the first, four runs in the seventh. My dad and I was just the two of us out at the ballpark that night. Cubs lost 10-2. It was just so sort of soul-crushing. You felt the Cubs season was getting away from them. A terrible Kansas City team beat up Steve Traxel that night. Good highlight for the Cubs in that ball game. Sammy did his thing, two hits and an RBI, but just an ugly, ugly loss. And pulling up that box score, actually some pretty decent names in that lineup for Kansas City that day. Johnny Damon, Carlos Beltran, Jermaine Dye, Joe Randa, Ray Sanchez. Some of the names in the lineup that day for the Kansas City Royals. But that's a pretty bad loss. When you're getting slapped around by a team that's 37-54, and 54, doesn't feel good to be out at the ballpark watching Steve Traxel taking 30 minutes between pitches as the Cubs lose. Uh, yeah, that's a bad one. I, 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 that's a terrible one. I mean, seeing him lose the Royals. I got one here for Randall. Uh, just thinking about it, just because you mentioned that 10 to two loss, to the Royals, I was at a game this year, Jake Arrieta on the mound. It's like June 21st Cubs, you know, they're, they're struggling, but we're still got a chance. Uh, we're playing the Miami Marlins. It's a day game. I like a Saturday. It's hot as hell. I'm in the bleachers at Jake Arrieta just gets bombed starting yeah. from basically the first inning and the Cubs lost that game. Like, you know, they gave up 11, 12 runs to the Marlins and that was not a fun game to be at. That was, that was pretty disappointing. Understandably. Yeah. Understandably. Well, let's get some wins this year. We need a season. We want to make that happen. Uh, one final thing we want to talk about here today Number 56 on the podcast, there have been some names over the years that have won, uh, worn number 56 for the Chicago Cubs. Randall, two guys on my mind when you mentioned 56. Brian McRae, who was a Cub 95 to 97, center fielder with a little bit of pop. 
The other name that I liked and uh, wanted to highlight, Ray King, who in 1999 pitched for the Chicago Cubs. That game I was telling you about a minute ago, he pitched in that game for the Cubs in that awful loss against Kansas City. So I, I saw Ray King that day. Number 56, Randall, who catches your attention? Well, Ronan, I know I, as soon as I looked at that list, I said, oh, Brian McRae, that's a Ronan guy, and Ray yeah. King, that's a Ronan guy. Before I get to my guy, I want to note something on this list right here. And, of course, this information comes courtesy of Casey Ignarski's fantastic website. You can find that, CubsByTheNumbers.com. Find him on Twitter at Casey Ignarski. The number 56 uh, has a pretty long gap in Cubs history. It was worn by... Uh, pitcher Al Epperly. Yeah. Right-handed pitcher Al Epperly. He wore number 56 for the Cubs in 1938. It would not be worn again until coach Verlin Walker, 1961 to 1965. And then it would not be worn again until Ronan's guy, Brian McRae in 1995. So this is a number. And again, the Cubs have had Jersey numbers since the early thirties. This is a number that had a pair of roughly 30 year gaps. And I yeah. don't necessarily know why that is, but it is the case just the same. But with that little bit of history out of the way, the one guy who will always be number 56 to me, that's Hector Rondon, the great Cubs reliever, 2013, 2017. Ronan and Jeremy, you were at his first major league save, an extra innings game in St. Louis. Wellington Castillo, the game winning home run that night. That's right, Beef. Hector Rondon, one of my favorite all-time Cubs, watching him be this great closer in 2015 for a, a playoff Cubs team, electric fastball, great breaking pitch. He'll always be number 56 to me. So Hector Rondon, you're number 56 to me. I, I thought for sure you were going to say Cliff Bartosh. Yeah, that's where I was going. Boy, you know, he's he's a close second. Anytime you can get a Cliff Bartosh mention on the podcast, you got to go for it. He's a, a close number two for me. Yeah, to me, I was going to mention Cliff Bartosh because that is the one name for the most part. I have absolutely no idea who that is. And that's 2005. And apparently looking him up, Cliff Bartosh pitched in 19 games in 2005 and finished seven of them. And I honestly, 540, <laughs> 549 ERA with an 8.1 FIP, 8.10. But I, I have no recollection of Cliff Bartosh. So if anybody wants to fill me in on Cliff Bartosh, Go right ahead. Uh, I, that was like a name. I, I was like, who the hell is that guy? Well, you know, I have very vague memories of Cliff Bartosh. Most of them are not good. What I do remember about Cliff Bartosh is that there was a wild series between the Cubs and the Red Sox at Wrigley in June of 2010, the Friday game. Greg Maddox actually homered in that game. It was a, 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 a seething hot hmm. day at Wrigley. Greg Maddox managed to homer. The Cubs won that game in a blowout. But, uh, of course, the recent Hall of Fame inductee, David Ortiz, Big Poppy, he had himself a day. He hit, uh, I want to say, two or maybe three home runs. And one of those, of course, was off, who other than Cliff Bartosh. So Cliff Bartosh, no matter where he is, no matter what he does, he can always say he gave up a home run to a future Hall of Famer and two home runs by David Ortiz that day. So Cliff Bartosh has that. That on his resume and cliff bartosh also gave up a home run that day and i'm seeing this right now to former cub legend mark bellhorn oh wow That's bellhorn right. hit some slams in his time as a chicago cub knee-high socks guy too good look for a cubs corner infielder randall i got a guy i need you to look up for me i've talked so much about the 2001 chicago cubs i love that team we had multiple episodes last summer highlighting the 01 cubs apparently jason smith or number 56 for the 2001 Chicago Cubs. I have absolutely no idea who Jason Smith is. Was he a pitcher? Was he? I have no Jason idea. Jason Smith listed on the baseball reference, the venerable website. 
as a pinch hitter, second baseman, and shortstop. He was, as you oh. said, a Cub. Oh, you're going to love this. He was a Cub in 2001. He got into two games. He had one plate appearance. Let's, <laughs> that's right. Let's dive in and see just how that time as a Cub went. Yes, he had one plate appearance as a Chicago Cub. He uh, struck out in one of them. And yeah, that's that's pretty much it. He struck out. <laughs> yeah, he has that on his resume. He struck out once. I can do Exactly. You could do that. And as far as defensively, he was able to get in there and he was able to play one game at shortstop for the 2001 Cubs. He played one inning. He handled two putouts. I could so, not do that. Yeah. No, uh, his name sounds familiar to me. And he actually had a pretty long career. He spent nine years in the majors. He did. He did. Yeah. So and he was not a, a full CBD, but. He was a TBD, a Tampa Bay Devil Ray. So that's that's the fabric of baseball. There's always going to be some guy on a team you followed very closely, but you have no memory of them. And then you look it up and wow, he got a whole two plate appearances and he played a whole two innings at shortstop. The fabric of the game is is woven with guys like that. They had six, he appeared in 69 games in the 2007 for 150 plate appearances. For who? Uh, for a combination of the Toronto Blue Jays and the Arizona Diamondbacks. Wow. And well, the Kansas City Royals. And the Kansas City Royals. Zero memory of that guy as a Chicago Cub. Guy who had a surprisingly long career, Ray King. I remember mm-hmm. him on the 99 Cubs. He was a lefty bullpen guy. He felt like kind of an older veteran on that team. He was only 25. He had already been with a couple different organizations. He made his major league debut as a member of the Cubs. Didn't really work out. He only pitched in about 10 innings that year for the 99 Cubs. You think, okay, maybe his career's over. He went on to pitch for another decade. He stayed in the National League his entire career, multiple years in Milwaukee, got to the World Series with the St. Louis Cardinals in 2004, played for the Rockies, the Nationals, back in Milwaukee. This guy had a productive, lengthy major league career. Good for him. Always cool when a player you think is done, and then they go on, they play for another decade. It's always fun to see that. Yeah, I remember my Ray King memories are of, one, being against the Cubs in the 2003 NLDS with the Atlanta Braves. Yeah. And totally. two, uh, his short stint, not short, I guess, two seasons, which to his career is a lot, a long time, uh, two seasons with the Cardinals, where he was actually a very good left-handed reliever, uh, especially on the 2004 team that made it to the World Series. And I always remember Ray King coming in. And I always remember you uh, going off about Ray King as a Cardinal <laughs> and as a Brewer and as a Brave and all the times he faced the Cubs. But it's cool. He you know, made it work, and uh, anybody – who can have a lengthy time in the majors, you tip your cap to do that. Uh, 56, though, a number that has not been worn extensively. That was cool research you did there, Randall. Um, Adrian Sampson, the most recent. So not a whole lot of notoriety with that number. Hector Ryan, Ryan. one of the uh, more fun Cubs players in the last decade or so. Hector is a World Series hero, so we're always going to be a fan of him on this podcast. Kyle Ryan, you got three years? 56. Sure. How How could we forget Kyle Ryan? Ah, Next recent. week's a big one, though, boys. Number 57. Hopefully we'll have some updates about these daily meetings that the Major League Baseball owners are happening. But just to throw out some names for 57, we get to talk Sam Fold. We get to talk Rocky Cherry. The ice cream man. A little more Augie Ojeda. A little more Antonio Alfonseca. Also a 2015 Cub reliever. We'll put a dagger through your heart. There's a hint. Think about that. We'll talk about him number 57 next week. Jeremy Randall, always good talking Cubs baseball with you both. We'll be back next week with a lot more to say here and hopefully some positive progress in the collective bargaining agreement. We'll see you next week.